Alright, you can turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 12 with me. Second Samuel 12, this is a fitting song to finish with, uh, asking God to consecrate our lives and sever any tie that we have to this world except for the tie that binds us to His heart. And um, I think that's a good way to pray through song before we get into this passage because uh, really this is a call for spiritual transformation, consecration. God, I give myself to You. My life belongs to You, not for the purpose of my uh, earthly pleasure, but for the purpose of Your glory. And so I'm going to take pleasure in what You take pleasure in, and that is um, my holiness. David was a man who had things under control. In the last chapter, we saw this key word, sent. He sent his men to battle. They obeyed him. He sent for Bathsheba. She came to him. And they had this affair. He sent Uriah to be killed. He sent him with a message to be killed and um, so that David's image could be protected and mission accomplished. And then he sent for Bathsheba again, this time for marriage, and she came and married him. David had everything under control. But Nathan, here in chapter 12, has to remind him that he wasn't in control. God was. And until David got his eyes back on God, his life would chaotically be spinning out of control, leaving an irreparable wake of disaster behind him. And, and God is merciful to us in that way, that, that He exposes our sin. And He reminds us in whose world we live. You know, this is my Father's world. This is not our world. This world does not belong to us. We are not the, the masters of our own universe. We live in God's world. And we live to serve Him. And as long as we miss that point, we do great damage to ourselves and to others. Isn't that the truth when you, that you've seen in your own life, life and the life of others as well? That, that we do great damage to ourselves when we fail to remember that this is God's world. That, that, that I'm going to live for myself and I'm going to do what pleases me and in the process we do all sorts of damage to ourselves and our, our own relationships. And that's what, what um, we're going to see here because there are serious consequences to the sin of David. Let me um, begin reading in chapter 12, verse 1, and we'll just read down to verse 15 um, to get a, an idea of what the text is about, and then we'll cover the rest of the chapter as we go through. Second Samuel chapter 12. This is the Word of God. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herd, herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and and he, the, the rich man, was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. 
he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. And it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. And then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. In chapter 12, we see that my sin is blinding and destructive. Our sin is blinding and destructive. The nature of David's sin is that he was so good at covering things up that he was blinded to the darkness, the the evil of his own sin, the wickedness of his own sin. And he was blinded to the destructive nature of that sin. He didn't see ahead. Uh, you know, like Proverbs says, the, the wise person sees the danger that is ahead and turns from it. The fool sees the danger and walks right into it. David didn't see the danger that was ahead. He simply just acted. And so he's blinded not only to the evil of it, how wicked it is before God, but also how it's going to affect his life, how it's going to change uh, his life. And really, that's what the end of 2 Samuel is all about. 2 Samuel 12 through the end, I think it's chapter 25, is all about the, the tragedy that comes because David turned away from God in this, this period of time when he committed immorality and murder. My sin is blinding and destructive. First thing we see in verses 1-9 through nine is that my sin blinds me to its destructive effects. It's, a, it's destructive effects. And the, the deception of sin is that my sin is not as ugly to me as it is to others. My sin is not as ugly to me as it is to others. See, when we see sin in other people, we see how ugly it is. We see how disastrous it is. We see how terrible it is. Even if we don't see the consequences of it, we see how ugly it is. But, but the nature of sin is that it deceives. And David is blinded to his own sin. He, he doesn't see how ugly it is in himself. He clearly sees it in the, the rich farmer, but he doesn't see it in himself. And because he doesn't see it clearly, God sends Nathan to him to speak truth into his situation. This was probably one or one year or more later because the child that was conceived uh, with Bathsheba is already born according to verse 14 because right after this, 
uh, conversation with Nathan, apparently this child becomes sick. So David really is ignoring this sin for this period of time or justifying in his mind. It's not clear what exactly he's doing, although there are some psalms. There is at least one psalm that appears to be written during this time or at least after this time, looking back on that time. Psalm 32 said, I, When I thought about my sin, I wasted away in my body. But whatever the case is, he's, he's a year removed from this disastrous sin this wicked sin against God. And God uses a story to expose David's sin to get him to indict himself. And we're familiar with this story, right? We're familiar with how Nathan uh, uses another story to show the wickedness of, of a character and then takes that character's wickedness and applies it to David. You are the man. It's unclear whether the story is a parable just to use to, to expose David's sin or it's a real story. Either way, the point is to, to, um, to show that David was sinful. And in the story, we have two characters. Really, we have three, but the two primary characters are the rich farmer and the poor man. The third character is the traveler. And the conflict in the story is that the rich farmer has a guest to care for. And, and in those days, uh, a traveler couldn't go, as I mentioned before, he couldn't go to the Holiday Inn or, or stop off at Culver's on the way to get a meal. He, if he wanted food... It had to be taken care of by a friend or someone who is willing to care for strangers. That's why hospitality was so critical in the ancient Near East. And so this rich man knows he has this obligation to care for this traveler. And so where am I going to feed him? How, what am I going to use to feed him? Well, instead of going to his rich supply of animals, he steals the poor man's only little lamb. And, and look at how the poor man viewed this animal at the end of verse three, it would eat out of his it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. You know, people who have pets like this treat them like family. Okay, this is this little poor man. It's the only one he can afford. It's the only one he has. The rich man takes this little ewe lamb that's like a family member to him, and he kills it and feeds it to the traveler. And so, when we look at the story, we obviously see the evil in it. Right, An unbiased observer sees the evil of the rich farmer. He had so much, and he treats the poor man with such treachery. I mean, why do that? Why not just take one of your own? How, how cold and heartless can he be? I mean, look at what David, look how David describes it at the end of verse 6. Because he did this thing and had no compassion. That's exactly it, David. This rich farmer had no compassion. All he was thinking about was his own bottom line. He's so cold and calloused. But the nature of this rich farmer is that, that that rich farmer is just like David and like us in that we are good at covering up our own sins. We're good at using problem solving in order to minimize the damage that our sin creates. I mean, as soon as David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he worked to cover up the damage by bringing Uriah home and trying to get him to sleep with her so that it would look like it was his child. And that didn't work. And so instead of making up a false charge against him and executing Uriah on the spot saying, this man deserves to die, so, and, and then that way he could go and marry Uriah and no one would know uh, what, what had happened. Instead of doing that, instead of killing him in cold blood, he had him killed in battle. That, that way there's no questions. It doesn't come up on the news, just another death in battle. Just 
this part of war, right? And the reality was, the reality of what was going on was, I think, hidden from Joab, the military commander. I don't think he understood what was going on. I don't think the nation understood what was going on. And I don't even think uh, Bathsheba knew what was going on. I think she may have, have thought that her husband just died because of natural causes. I doubt. I mean, put yourself in David's shoes. Would you tell your mistress right, that you had killed her husband? Um, so I think that she probably didn't know what was going on either. And what's even more amazing than David fooling everyone around him was that David, I think, fooled himself into thinking that what he did was not that bad. The reason I know that is because when Nathan tells the story, David sees the clear evil and says this person deserves to die. But he doesn't see that in himself, does he? And what that tells me is that David, when he looks at his own actions, he's justified them in his own mind and he has determined that his actions are not as evil as the farmer's actions. Why is that? Why are we so good at justifying our own sin? Why can we not see the evil in our own actions but can clearly see it in someone else? And I think mainly it's because we don't think deeply about our sin. But I think it's also because we think too highly about ourselves, about our motives. I mean, do you think David really sat down and took stock of his situation prior to Nathan's coming to him? You think he thought, you know what, let me just consider what's taken place over the last few weeks or the last year. I committed this evil against God and I did what was clearly prohibited against God. And if, if I saw this in someone else, I would want to see that person dead. God would have every right to strike them dead. And so I deserve to die for my sin. But I don't think he thought that way. And I think he thought, to it, thought about it to some degree. He was miserable, miserable about it. Psalm 32 seems to make that clear that he was wasting away as he thought about his sin. But I don't think he thought rationally about his own sin. Notice the end of verse 4. It says, Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man. He took the poor man's ewe lamb. Turn back to chapter 11 and look at verse 4 because that language is very similar to what David did to Uriah. David sent messengers and took her. When she came to him, he lay with her. This is not trying to exonerate um, Bathsheba from any wrongdoing. I think she was, um, she was evil in this as well by committing this act of adultery. But notice that David took her. It's like, you, it's like the poor farmer is Uriah, right? And he has the one little ewe lamb, his wife. And David has so much. He has... Everything he wants, that's what God's going to say to him. And yet, he takes from a man who has almost nothing, someone who's helpless. So it's true that we may be good at covering up our sin, but God is good at exposing our sin. And here the method that God uses to expose David's sin is by causing David to see the evil in someone else and then showing him that he did something much more evil. Notice that David sees the ugliness in verses 5 and 6. His anger burned greatly against the man 
And he says, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution fourfold. So two consequences that David saw for this rich farmer. One is death. Two is restitution. So in other words, he deserves to die and then he also deserves that part of his estate needs to go to pay back what was taken from this poor farmer. Fourfold. I mean, is he right? Does this man deserve to to pay restitution? I think he's right about the restitution, but what about the death? Exodus 22 says that a person who steals an animal must pay back fourfold. So I think David was right there, but no mention of death. And so I think what David's doing is he's being a little bit harsher on this farmer than he would be on himself if he were in that situation. But the reason for this is because the end of verse 6, he showed no compassion. And what David didn't recognize until Nathan said, you are the man, is that this story was not really about a rich farmer. This was about David. It was about David's sin. And God is good at exposing sin. One, one author says it this way, Alexander White. He says, Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David knew that Nathan had a sword. God uses this method where we can see something so clearly in someone else and then when it's turned on us, we say, wow, that is me. My sin is not as ugly to me as it is to others. Then verses 7-9, through see that my sin thrives in the soil of ungratefulness. My sin thrives in the soil of ungratefulness. God speaks through Nathan to David like a disappointed father speaks to his son. He says, look at what I've given you. Verse 7, notice all the things that he's given. Verse 7, I anointed you as king. So I've given you a kingdom, David. Secondly, the end of verse 7, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. So I've given you a kingdom, deliverance, verse 8, authority and power. I've given you your master's house, your master's wives, probably uh, take the harem that belonged to Saul and now it's under David's care. Not clear if he used that harem in the same way that Saul did, but, but whatever the case is, I've given you your master's wives. And then notice at the end of verse 8, this is probably the, the, the one that strikes the chord the most. It says and at the end of verse 8, and if that, if, that, if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. So if it were about not having enough, then I would have given you more. And yet what you did was you stole from me, right? Just like that farmer stole from the poor farmer, you stole from me. You stole from a man who had nothing. Notice how his sin is described in verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? So I have made it clear what I wanted you to do and you've despised what I've said. But it's not only that. At the end of verse 9, it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's not just despising God's word. It's not just doing evil in his sight. But notice verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. See here, David's sin is first exposed to him and then called what it is. This is what we need to see about our sin. You know, we like to downplay it by saying, you know, 
it, it's, a, it's a white lie or, you know, this is a little sin. And what God is saying is, no, you have despised my word. You have done evil in my sight. You have not just despised my word. You've despised me. Verse 9. And then verse 14. The nature of a sin is that he gave occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. He made a mockery of serving God. And this is what we need to do when it comes to our sin. We need to have it exposed for us and then we need to call sin what it is. You know, call it defiance against God. Call it uh, dethroning God. Call it idolatry. Because that's what it is. Not, you know, I made a little mistake. I had a little slip up when I did this. Or, you know, I was trying to cover up for something else and so that's what I did over here. Now we call sin what it is, and this is what God does. He just says it in stark terms. You have despised my word. You've done evil in my sight. You've despised me. You've given occasion for the enemies to blaspheme. You see, David's sins are not small and unimportant. You know, really, if you think about it in terms of how big is David in light of the bigger picture, how many people were living on that earth, right? Hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. Millions of people living on the earth and and, and David is just one little person in one small little corner of the world. And so what, what's the big deal? He comes, like Ecclesiastes says, he comes for a little while and then he dies. What's it really going to matter in the big scheme of things? But God sees sin as serious. And what David needed to recognize is that his anger was rightly aroused at that rich farmer but what David did was much worse, much more evil than what the farmer had done. You see, David did not just take from the poor man. What else did he do to the poor man? He killed him. And what did David think should happen to the one who just stole from the rich, from the, from the poor man? He thought death and restitution. So now the knife has been turned on David and he's recognized, he's now recognizing that his own sin is evil before God. And if he would have been thinking rationally about his own sin and not justifying it, he would have seen how corrupt he was in the eyes of God. My sin blinds me to its destructive effects. Verses 1-9. through nine. Secondly, my sin, uh, my sin demands restitution. And I would say I would say it this way, my sin demands restitution even if I've already repented. We might we might look at look at David, we're going to come to this here when we get to verse 13, but we might look like to look at David and say, "Well, you know what? He he repented. He turned from his sin. He recognized how foolish that was and how godless that was." So why the consequences? But my sin demands restitution. If we drew a line in the text between David's obstinacy and his repentance, where would we put it? I mean, where was the time when David is obstinate and David repents? Well, I think the line would be at verse 13. Look at what he says there. I have sinned against the Lord. So it seems like David's making a turn there, and we know from the rest of his life that he has made a turn. We know from Psalm 51 that he's made a turn. But we need to recognize that genuine repentance does not make us immune to the consequences of our sins. That is, that it is completely just for God to give us consequences of our sin even if we have turned away from that sin. Look at the heavy price of this restitution. 
that David had to pay. Verse 10, restitution through constant war. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me. That is, you're always going to have conflict and war even within your own house. It's going to be like the pagan kings, right? And all the war and the fighting for the throne, that's going to happen. It's going to happen in the next chapter because you have Amnon, who is next in line for the throne, being killed by Absalom, who is the, the, the second in line for the throne, and then Absalom dying in war, and then Adonijah trying to take over, and eventually it comes to Solomon. But you have this constant infighting, infighting because of David's sin. Constant war. Second form of restitution comes through humiliation and defeat. Verse 11, I will raise up evil against you in your or from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it secretly, but I will do this before all Israel under the sun. They're going to see it. And what he's talking about here, if you know the rest of the story, is that Absalom, Absalom in chapter 16 will lie with David's lesser wives, his concubines, on a rooftop. It's not going to be done in private going to be done as a way to, to show that he's taking over David's throne. This was a way in the ancient Near East to, to show that you were um, that you had the kingdom yourself to take the wives of the king. God's saying, listen, David, you committed this, this uh, evil in secret. I'm going to, to do this in public. I'm going to humiliate you and defeat, uh, uh, bring you defeat in public. And David would again be on the run from his own son as we'll see in several chapters ahead. My sin demands restitution despite my repentance. Verse 13, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And we might think, well, from here, God's going to drop the charges. You know, it's like, well, is that how it works? I mean, is that how it works in court? When we say, you know, how do you find yourself? I find myself guilty. Okay, charges drop. Is that how it works? No. I mean, there's still, there's still a debt to pay. You know, if we stole, we still got to pay that person back. If we caused an offense against someone, we may have to spend some time in prison. And David recognizes that, that he has offended God. Notice, David sinned against Bathsheba, right? David sinned against Uriah. David sinned against Joab. David sinned against Israel. But what does he say here in verse 13, as he says in Psalm 51? I have sinned against the Lord. And David's right to say this because whenever we sin, God is always the most offended party. We might like to downplay and say, well, you know, I'll, I'll give some kind of restitution to that person. I'll make sure that they're assuaged, their wrath is assuaged. But really, is God's wrath assuaged? Because that's who we have ultimately sinned against. I love this next part of verse 13. God's forgiveness. David acknowledges a sin and Nathan immediately says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Isn't this great news for us? Sin does have serious consequences, yes. But when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Your sins have been taken away from you. And God is even merciful. 
Notice what he says there at the end of verse 13. You shall not die. So God could have done what David said should have happened to the rich farmer. Death. But instead, God says, I'm going to be merciful to you. I'm going to allow you to live. But instead, David's son would die. So we see, although David didn't have to die, as a direct result of his sin, there would be death that David would experience. Verse 14, the death of his son. This son that was born out of this immoral relationship will die. And that's what really most of the, the, the rest of the chapter is about. In verses 15 to 17, David prays for God to relent. You know, maybe God will, will be merciful to me and, and actually um, go against what he has said he would do. So verse 16, David therefore inquired of God for the child and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground and the elders of his household stood beside him in order, in order to raise him up from the ground but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. David's mourning for his child who's now sick and on the brink of death. In verses 18 to 23, the child dies. It happened on the seventh day that the child died. The servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead since he might do himself harm? So he was pretty bad when the child was sick. How much worse is he going to be when he finds out the child is dead? Verse 19, But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes and he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. See, when David was was um, was David was was in sackcloth and ashes, they thought he was mourning. Uh, they thought he they, that he was mourning, and that this mourning was going to be even worse. This grief was going to be, become even greater. But what David was doing was actually fasting and praying, which is the same sort of thing. You distilled in sackcloth and ashes. But David was actually seeking God's face and asking for healing. And David's real mourning didn't start until after the boy died. And he says at the end of verse 23, I will go to him. Sounds like he's talking about reuniting with this child in the afterlife. He doesn't say, I'll go after him, I'm going to die too. Or I'm going to go with him, I'm going to end up in the grave. But, but rather, I'm going to go to him. I'm going to see him again. So there seems to be some indication that that um, although this isn't a theology lesson here in, in chapter 12, it seems to be that, that infants do go to heaven. And that's a whole other debate. But Thirdly, my sin does not sever God's love for me. My sin blinds me to its destructive effects. My sin demands restitution even after I've repented. 
And thirdly, my sin does not sever God's love for me. Here's the hope that we see in the passage. We already saw a, a glimpse of hope, right? In verse 13, your sin has been taken away from you. Here we see another glimpse of hope. And David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she gave birth to a son and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. So God is merciful in granting another son through Bathsheba and this son we know would be the one that would perpetuate the line, that would be the fulfillment, that would help fulfill the promise that God had made that you know, your, your kingdom will never end. It's not going to come through Amnon or... Absalom or Adonijah or any of the other sons is going to come through through Solomon. So God God continues to show His love despite despite David's sin. And then, number four, my sin is not the end of me in verses 26-31. And here I'm not going to read the verses, but basically what happens is Joab is continuing the fight that we saw begin in chapter 11. He's fighting the Ammonites on their home turf and actually in their capital city of Rabbah. And so when he's about to win, he says, you know what, I don't want to take the credit for it, so I'm going to let David do it. So he calls David and has David come. David makes the 40-mile trip. And the point is that David is not left to, you know, just sulk in his failure and say, you know, my life is over. I've, I've failed God and there's nothing more for me to do. Instead, he gets back up and says, you know what, I have work to do. Not to, to dismiss his sin or ignore his sin, but, but rather to get on with life. You know, to take the next step. And in this case, it is protecting the borders of Israel and, and defeating the enemies of Israel. And that's what happens in verses 26 through 31. Let me give you uh, five uh, points in conclusion here. Five points of principles that we can consider tonight. Number one, God exposes sin. God exposes sin. We may think that we have things under control like David did. We may think that we can hide from our sin. We may think we can hide our sin from others and from God, and and perhaps we can for a time. But as I mentioned last week, God sees and knows everything, doesn't He? And God will eventually expose our unrepentant sin either in this life or the next for our sake. Now, we don't have a prophet, so you're not going to be waiting around for someone to come up to you and, and, and point out your sin because they have a special word from God that you have sinned. It's not going to happen. But God can use any number of other ways to expose your sin. And perhaps you have experienced this as I have myself. right? When, when I have lived in times of secret sin that God has used various means to expose that sin. And I think the two primary ways that He uses in our age is the Word and the local church. The Word, that is, that as we see ourselves in the mirror of God's words, it ought to reflect on how much we've failed against God. But then the local church helps in that we have other believers who are concerned about our eternal souls and see potential pitfalls that we've, we've fallen into without even recognizing it. We have believers who come along and say, hey, you're off the path. Let me help you back up. Acknowledge your sin. Maybe they don't see it for themselves because they're blinded to it. They've just had this long period of time where they've justified it. And it's only gotten worse. 
And we have people who love us in this church who are willing to challenge us. Maybe not, you know, I'm, I'm the end all. I know everything about what's right and what's wrong, but maybe they just do it with a question. You know, have you considered what's going on here? This doesn't match up with what believers do. I mean, do, do you know of any believers that, that are doing this sort of thing? Do, do, can you see any good that could possibly come from continuing down this pathway? And I think that's how God exposes sin in, in our day. That is, through the Holy Spirit, through means like people, and through His Word. Number two, God is merciful to expose our sin. God exposes our sin, but He's merciful to do so. The trouble and sorrow that comes to David and his immediate family and his descendants is profoundly difficult. And when we look at all that David experiences, starting next week with his son raping his daughter, and then his other son murdering that son, and then all sorts of other treachery that follows. I mean, we wouldn't want to see anyone have to experience that much pain. And so we might look at God and think, you know, a little harsh to respond to David's sin in that way. But I would suggest to you that God's response to David is not harsh, but actually merciful. It's the most loving thing that he can do is to point David to the, the damage of his sin, the treachery of his sin. You know, we think that the worst form of judgment that God can bring on us is that while we're in our secret sin, that God could expose it and embarrass us or something. And yet, the worst form of judgment that God could bring on us when we're involved in our secret sin is not that He exposes us, but that He lets us go on in it, right? Like Romans 1, verse 28 says, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things that they wanted to do, the things that are not proper. The worst form of judgment that God could ever show to us is to allow us to continue on our sin. The best thing that He could do is to expose our sin and get, get us to turn from it. See, David covered up his sin for months, but God was loving to continue to pursue him, to expose the sin, to reveal it to him, to show him the severe consequences of defying God and of allowing him to be restored to, to fellowship with God. Aren't you thankful that God does not leave us in our sin, but that He lovingly exposes it to us so that we can be drawn out of it, that we can turn from it? God is merciful to expose our sin. Number three, when God exposes our sin, He reminds us of His goodness. David was a recipient of God's abundant mercy, and, and David gloried in God's mercy. He... he he um, dispensed God's mercy. In chapters 9 and 10, we've, I've mentioned several times, people who didn't deserve it, like Mephibosheth and Hanan, chapters 9 and 10. And here in chapters 11 and 12, he, he's the recipient of all this mercy, and yet he bites the hand that feeds him. He spurns God's mercy. He spurns God's gift. See, David's a picture of Israel. David's a picture of us. God has given us so, so much. For David, it was a kingdom and blessing and riches. And if that had not been enough, he would have given much more. How much have we been given in this age? How, much, how fat have we gotten on the grace of God? And yet even still, we clearly reject Him. We cover up our sins by creating a bigger mess. And as a result, 
God has every right to wipe us off the face of the earth, but in His mercy He bears with us and He does not treat us as our sins deserve. David and Israel and us will survive after our sin, but that does not mean that we're free from the consequences of sin. So there will be consequences, but even in that, those consequences, God is lovingly using those to reform us, to change us, transform us. Number four, we're not defined by our past sin. I would suggest that we're not defined so much by our past as much as we are with our present. Not so much defined by our past major sins that we've committed as much as we're defined by how we respond today. When the truth is shown to us, when we're confronted with the truth, how do we respond? David, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. That's how we're defined. Not by what we did, right? Proverbs 28:13 He who conceals his transgression will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. It's the idea of humility rather than pride. I don't need to confess my sin. I don't need to say anything to God about my sin. Will not prosper, but those who are willing to say, "God, I I've sinned against you and I'm going to go back to the person that I've sinned against and I'm going to to seek their forgiveness as well." Those are the people who will find compassion. Those who conceal it will not prosper, both temporally and eternally. What a profound difference, though, that we have between David and Saul, right? Saul, when he was confronted with his sin, was supposed to kill all the Amalekites, and he didn't do it. So he made excuses, passed the blame on other people, and I was going to use it for offering and all this other stuff. David didn't make any excuses. When he was confronted with his sin, he owned up to it as sin. And I I think if David wanted to, he would have gone back and undid all the hurt and destruction that he had created with his sin. He would have stopped the disaster before he made it worse by covering it up. But he can't. And we can't. We can't go back and, and undo all that we've done in the past. But what we can do is be defined by today. How am I going to respond to my sin today? Am I going to keep covering it? Or am I finally willing to confess it and forsake it? Number five, the exposure of our sin is all about God's glory. The exposure of our sin is all about God's glory. Whether we put our faith in God or whether we defy God with our sin. God is primarily concerned about His glory. Consider David's positive example of his fight against Goliath. What was at stake in that fight against Goliath? Was it the reputation of Israel? Partly. Ultimately, it was the reputation of whom? God. Right? You will not defy our God, the armies of the living God. You're not going to defy Him. Stop blaspheming our God as if He can't do this. He can't win this battle. That was what was at stake. Here, we have not faith being expressed, but sin. And what's at stake again is God's glory. What does God say? In, I'm going to have to find it now. Uh, verse 14. By this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme Him. What, what really is at stake here? It's not about all the trouble that David's going to face, all the trouble that he creates for Israel. That's part of it. But, but most 
the most important thing is that He's given room for the enemies to blaspheme. This is what our sin does. They see our sin and they, they say, well, what, what's the value in serving that God? And so this message is for you and me. If you have not fallen from grace, if you have had a life of, of righteousness and, and goodness and, and you're trying your best to, to um, walk in holiness and you haven't turned away from God in a big way, then let this passage be a warning to you. Because every single one of us, because of our sin nature, is capable of the worst kinds of sin. You might not see yourself in David at all in this situation. But if you don't, then you're, you've just taken the first step to falling. But this is also for those of us who have fallen hard. Right? If you have defied God in a big way, then there is hope. It's bleak, isn't it? To see all the consequences that come from our sin. But there's also hope that's, that's woven into this passage. Your sins have been taken away from you. You don't get what you ultimately deserve. And that God is even merciful, even in restoring us, like giving Him another son and not severing a relationship with David forever. The reality is that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And that's the nature of a loving father. Like the song, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. Father, like He tends and spares us, well our feeble frame He knows. In His hands, He gently bears us and rescues us from all our foes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Widely yet His mercy flows. Let's pray. Father, we pray for Your grace. We pray that You would expose it and we don't want to cover it anymore. We don't want to be defined by constantly um, running away from our sin and, and justifying it in our minds and trying to cover up damage with more sin. We want to own up to it and, and experience Your mercy because what You're ultimately doing in us is not giving us a life, life of, of riches and, and um, just a great reputation. What You're ultimately working in us to do is to transform us into the image of Your Son. And that means that we need to, to own up to what we've done to You. And Lord, I, I don't know what that step looks like in, in each of us, Maybe it's to go and and to begin by talking to you. Maybe it's to go and talk to someone else. Maybe they've already asked forgiveness from you and now they need to seek forgiveness from someone else. Maybe there's something else that needs to be done. Lord, would you give wisdom and provide um, clarity in your word as to how to respond to sin? Lord, most of all, may we believe the promise that if we confess and forsake our sin, that you will that you will, um, you will help us, uh, you will forgive us, and you will cleanse us. Thank you that you are merciful even in our unrighteousness. Thank you that you bear with us like you did with David for a year as he didn't own up to it. And Lord, we, we have seen you be merciful to us. We pray that you would be merciful to us all the way till the end. May we depend up upon you no matter what we've done. And, and find grace and mercy in time of need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.